0: If you're digging the content, leave us a rating and review, as that helps us and other fans of pop culture find us. Enjoy the show. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to What's In My Head podcast today. I'm joined by Mr. Gary Wolf, the creator and father of Bat Rabbit sitting right beside him. Mr. Roger Rabbit. Gary, how are you, sir? Hey, I'm fine. Thank you very much. And Roger says hello to Oh, man. If there was one movie that I can sit there and look back and to be honest, I didn't know this was a book when I was younger, right? I didn't really mm-hmm. I don't know if you can tell this, but I'm not really the reading type when I was younger. that's uh, progressed and I've gotten better at reading since I was a little boy and have since read this book. But this movie specifically and that character was so huge for me as a little kid. Uh, mm-hmm. Taking a step back, when did that thought of creating that rabbit sitting right next to you pop into your head? Do you remember?
1: Oh, I, I remember exactly. Uh, I was uh, I was writing my fourth novel. I had a four book contract with Doubleday. And uh, I was writing my fourth novel in that four book contract. And I wanted, to, uh, I wanted to incorporate the things that I loved reading when I was a kid. And the things that I loved reading when I was a kid were comic books uh, and uh, w- what today you would call noir mysteries back then. Uh, my father read them they were true crime mystery books and uh, these were these were magazines that had stories about true crimes usually usually gruesome murders and they were they were factual stories with actual photographs so they would send a, a, a photographer and a writer to a crime scene and the writer would write it up and the photographer would take pictures of the dead bodies sometimes move the dead bodies around so they were more photogenic yeah. And my dad read these and, uh, you know, my mother, good woman that she was, uh, told me, she said, you know, the, what, the way you are going to advance in life, the way you are going to get out of this town. I, I was brought up in a small farm town in Illinois, 1400 people where my dad ran the pool hall. <laughs> um, and my mom worked in the cafeteria. And my mom said, you know, the way you're going to get out of this town and not wind up working and owning your dad's pool hall is to read just read so uh you know good mom that she was she never put any restrictions on what i read so i read comic books uh, superman batman wonder woman uncle scrooge uh, you know whatever you had i watched cartoons and i read my dad's true crime magazines uh, luckily i graduated to a better better quality of true crime magazine uh, you know noir mysteries uh, uh, Raymond Chandler, uh, uh, Sam Spade, uh, um, Mickey uh, Mickey Spillane, but basically hard-boiled, hard-boiled crime. So I had a, a four-contract book with Doubleday to write four mm-hmm. novels. The first one was Killer Bull. The second one was A Generation Removed. The third one was The Resurrectionist. Uh, all science fiction novels. And it came time for my fourth novel. And they, they gave me pretty much creative freedom they said you know write what you want we really love you write what you want so I wanted to write something that incorporated those two loves of my life cartoons and, and comic books and noir mysteries and, and you know not easily done to, to figure out how to put those two together so I, I'm sitting there one Saturday morning I'm, I'm watching Saturday morning cartoons right uh for research I told my wife I <laughs> know Research, and uh, I, I I was taken not with the cartoons because I felt they were you know, pretty simplistic and not at all like the cartoons I loved when I was a kid. Uh, but I became taken with the commercials because I saw uh, the Tricks Rabbit, uh, Captain Crunch, Snap Crackle and Pop, Tony the Tiger, who were cartoon characters talking to real kids, and nobody seemed to think that was odd. And I, I thought to myself, you know, what a great idea that would be for a novel. What if I created a world where cartoon characters were real? What kind of a world would that be? So I spent a year just researching all the kinds of things that happened in cartoons and comic books that I could use in a real world that would be funny and, and, and unusual and interesting. Uh, and I wrote the book. Um, um, I wanted my lead character to be a rabbit because I wanted him to be kind of Disney-esque. And this was way, way before there was any relationship with Disney. I just wanted my lead character to be a kind of a fun, loving Disney kind of rabbit. Mm -hmm. And, um, they didn't have, they didn't have a rabbit. I mean, uh, Warner Brothers had bugs, but Disney didn't have anybody. So I came up with Roger and made him kind of a Disney-esque rabbit. Um, Married to uh, uh, a surfier. real, uh, a real kind of woman, a cartoon woman, uh, Jessica, and um, uh, whom I modeled after Red Hot Riding Hood, which was a, a Tex Avery character
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, created in the 40s, 30s and 40s, and um, uh, named the detective. My detective Eddie Valiant. I named him after my dad as a thank you for. Introducing me you to know, all those uh, graphic crime magazines, uh, and I did the novel. I came up with a you know a premise that would only work in a world where cartoon characters were real. Wrote the novel, and it was you know clearly the best thing I had ever written in my life. I mean, it was it was just you know, it was brilliant. And uh, you know, I'm, I'm not being boastful. I mean, all the reviews and everybody who reads it says, "Wow, it's a brilliant novel." Yes. So I sent it to Doubleday. Uh, as the fourth novel in my four novel contract. And for the first time in my professional writing career, I mean, I'd written hundreds of short stories and three novels, never had a reject. And they rejected my book, which was called Who Censored Roger Rabbit? They rejected it. So uh, I, called, uh, I, I called my editor and I said, Sharon, why, why did you reject this book? This is clearly the best thing I've ever written. And she said, yeah, she said, I, I think so too. Uh, but it was so unusual. It was so different from anything you've ever written before. So different from anything anybody's ever written before that I had to send it over to the marketing department and it was the marketing department that rejected it. So I called the head of the marketing department and said, Hey, Chuck, you know, why did you reject my book? And he said, Oh, well, I said, we all thought it was really, really funny, <clears throat> but there's, there's no category for it. There's no, Place for it on a bookstore shelf. It's not a regular adult novel. It's not a children's book. It's not a regular noir mystery. It's not a fantasy. There's no there's no place for it. I can't sell this book. So I said, "Well, Chuck, what would you do if somebody gave you today Gulliver's Travels, or The Wizard of Oz, or Alice in Wonderland? What would you do with those?" And he thought for a minute. He said, "Man, I couldn't sell those either." So. Uh, I went to my agent and I said, Bill, you know what what are we going to do here? Because if I can't, if I can't sell this, I don't want to be a writer anymore because this is what I want to write. And he said, oh, don't worry about it. It's a brilliant book. Well, you know, we'll find it at home. So he started sending it out to other publishers, uh, sometimes uh, different editors, the same publisher. and along the way it got 110 rejects. It was rejected 110 times. Um, in those days you got your rejects by mail, I guess now they come by email. I don't get that many, so I don't know, but uh, I'm assuming they come by email. But in those days, they came by mail. And uh, my wife used to call my trip out to the mailbox every day, the daily disappointments, because I would walk out and I would come back with five, sometimes six rejects on who censored Roger Rabbit. So, um, you know, I never gave up, never lost hope. Uh, Finally, on the 111th submission, it went to a woman named Rebecca Martin at a publishing company called St. Martin's Press. And Rebecca had uh, just published a big major bestseller for them. So the president gave her a vanity project. He said, look, next book you publish for us, whatever you want, you can publish anything you want. And just at that time, Roger Rabbit came across her desk. And of course, she loved it, all editors, all the editors loved it, all 110 of them. Uh, and uh, came across her desk and she said, okay, this is the book. So she took it to the president of the company, said to him, this is the book I wanna publish for my vanity project. He said, okay, I'm gonna take it home. I'm gonna read it tonight. We'll talk about it in the morning. So we went home that night, read the book, came back the next morning, called her into the office. She said, Rebecca, I told you you could publish any book you wanted, but you can't publish this because I can't sell it. And Rebecca stood up to the plate. She said, look, you told me I could have a vanity project. I could publish any book I want. Publish that book or I quit. So they published the book. And there you go. Um, Albeit in very, very small quantities. It was like 5,000 copies, uh, hardcover. I'm on the cover. Um,
0: Is she still around?
1: Uh, well, let me tell you, it, it, people ask me, if you could relive your life, would you do anything differently? And if I had a time machine, and if I could go back, that book came out in 1981, I would go back to 1981, and I would buy all 5,000 of those copies, because in 1981, they cost 298. dollars mm-hmm. and if you can find an original on eBay today, it's well north of $500, so I would have bought them all, put them in a barn somewhere <laughs> and then sold them off today. But um, yeah, if you go to my website, www.garywolf.com, you will see the book. Uh, it actually just came out again in hardcover. Um, and it is the same cover as uh, it was in 1981, me and a, a rabbit that I had created by a company called Kamar. Um, because in, in the book, he's a brown rabbit. He, Became a white rabbit later for reasons we can talk about, but um, I had a real rabbit made, and uh, the the photograph is showing uh, the rabbit from the back and me from the front, dressed in a trench coat and hat. And uh, the hardest part of the photo shoot was it took hours and hours, but I had a cigarette in my hand, and I don't smoke, but I had to have a burning cigarette. There was no Photoshop back then, so I had a burning cigarette, and the. Smoke kept going up my nose and making me cough, and you know, so much for my career as a male model.
0: But uh,
1: that's how it came to be, and that's how the rabbit came to be.
0: Is uh is she still around?
1: Uh, yeah, well, uh, no, nah, she's not. She uh, she apparently uh did not marry well. She married a guy who turned out to be a uh, a, a gangster,
0: mm-hmm. and
1: the last I heard, uh, she was in witness protection, oh, <laughs> living somewhere uh, where even I can't, uh, I can't um, communicate with her. I, I only hope that uh, she hears this at wherever she is in, in Tucson, Arizona, or wherever they put those people and knows just what a debt I owe her.
0: Yeah, yeah uh, thank you for sharing that story. Um, when when does Disney approach you to do this movie? Okay, so
1: the book, uh, the book, I sold the book in
0: 1980
1: Mm -hmm. and uh, it took about a year in those days for a book to go from um, from being purchased to actually being uh, published. So um, in that year, 1980 to 1981, uh, it was probably halfway through the year, I get this call on my home phone. And a guy on the other end of the phone says, hi, is this Gary K. Wolf?" I said, yeah, yes, it is. He says, well, this is Roy Disney from the Walt Disney Company. (laughs) And I said, yeah, right, Walt Disney. Roy Disney calling me at home on my home phone. That's, That's Joyce. Who is this really? He said, no, 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 it's really Roy Disney. He said, and I just read your book. And I'm wondering if you'd be interested in having the Disney company make a movie of it. I said, yeah, right, you read my book and hasn't even come out yet. Well, it turned out that somebody, I don't know who, uh, somebody at St. Martin's, and I, I've tried to find out who because I, I, I want to kiss her or him full on the lips, but somebody at St. Martin's sent a copy of the manuscript to Disney and said, hey, we think you'd like this. And it turned out they did very much. Um, they they needed a, a movie like like Roger Rabbit back in 1980, because they were in danger of becoming a second-rate movie production house. They oh, yeah. they had been offered Jaws, and they turned it down. They'd been offered E.T., and they turned it down. Uh, and they were making movies like Flubber, and The Nutty Professor, and uh, Herbie, The Love Bug, and, and, and The the black cauldron and the, and the black hole and, and, you know, the black cauldron disappeared down the black hole. So yeah. <laughs> uh, they, they were making second rate movies and they were in danger of becoming a second rate movie production house. And they needed something that was framework them than back into the, into the top ranks. And they saw this as being that movie, a live action animated movie, well done with a good story, great characters. Plus, uh, they were very very interested in the characters because it, it, as you might know if you walk down any city street in, in basically in the world today you see tons and tons and tons of t-shirts backpacks umbrellas lunch buckets whatever you got with Disney characters on mm-hmm. Disney makes a lot of money selling merchandise with its characters mm-hmm. on and uh, in in 1980 uh, their stable of characters was getting a little tired they had They had Mickey Mouse, who had kind of become the corporate spokesmouse. Uh, So you really couldn't fool around with him. You couldn't poke fun at him, and you couldn't make him look look stupid. Uh, There was Donald Duck. Uh, You could have fun with him, and you could make him look stupid, but nobody could understand what he said. So, you know, he was kind of out of it. Uh, So they they saw Roger Rabbit, uh, Jessica, Baby Herman as being characters that they could – they can merchandise and make additional money on. Uh, so they had a lot of reasons to, to buy the movie. Uh, I personally, I, I don't know if you've read the book. Everybody should read the book. Yeah. Um, you know, if you've read the book, um, the story is different from the movie because yes. the book's the book and the story and the movie's the movie. In the, in the movie, it lays it right out there for you to see. I mean, you look up at the screen and you see it. In the book uh a reader has to use his or her imagination and i you know i use a lot of conventions in the book that are frankly unfilmable like uh
0: how they the speak the the in the bubbles yeah I yeah like the, char-
1: the characters of the book are comic strip and comic book characters and they talk in word balloons they don't actually speak in words they speak in word balloons so word balloon comes up and you, you, you don't listen to them you read them and if the character turns around then the word balloon turns around, so you've got to, you know, either learn to read in reverse or turn around and get on the other side of the character. If if a tune gets shot with a tune gun, uh, produces a bang balloon, and then you, you pick up that bang balloon, and the bang balloons tend to get very brittle or like uh, fine china, and you have to be very careful with them. But uh, you pick up the bang balloon and you save it, and then if you f- Find the gun that you think did the crime. You, you fire a bang balloon out of that. and That's the two bang balloons match. That's the gun. Uh, when somebody plays the piano, the notes go drifting off into, into the sky. And people will grab those notes and cut them into 8 by 12 sheets. And that's where sheet music comes from. So, you know, I had a lot of fun yeah. playing with a lot of things that are visual and, and that are interesting and funny when you read them that um not so much filmable so i didn't really i didn't really believe even though disney wanted to make this movie i really didn't believe they would do it i i i I didn't believe that they would be able to do it the way i envisioned it the way i saw the world uh if they did it at all i didn't think they'd do it well um but on the other hand, I am a writer, and they did give me more money for it than I'd made on everything I'd written up to that point put together. So, you know, go ahead and try. Um, so they, uh, they bought it in mid-1980 and started working on it. And for the first couple of years, uh, they did indeed prove me right. They, uh, they tried and tried to produce it as a live-action animated movie But, uh, you know, in all fairness to Disney at the time, the technology wasn't there yet.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Uh, They did not have the technology required to do it and make it look real, make it look good. Uh, In fact, a lot of the stuff that they eventually used for the movie was invented for the movie. So, uh, but in 1980, 81, 82, 83, 84, they, they just didn't have it. Uh, They tried some tests. Uh, There was one test where P.B. Herman was the voice of Roger Rabbit. Um, He was kind of funny, but the the rabbit looked horrible and uh, didn't look at all real with the uh, human detectives. Uh, It was terrible. So at one point, Roy Disney came to me and said, You know, we're not having any luck with this as a live action animated movie. What would you think? if we did it with the cartoon characters in costume the way they are at Disneyland. And I'm thinking, Oh Jesus, I'm going to have the Disney stable of characters. I'm going to have Fred McMurray as Eddie Valiant. I'm going to have Haley Mills as Jessica. And have Dean Jones as the rabbit and Kurt Russell as baby Hermit, Um, I probably could have lived with Haley Mills as Jessica, but (laughs) the rest of it, no. And I said, hey, you know, don't you think that 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 sort of compromises the premise just a little bit? And everybody said, yeah, yeah, yeah you're probably right. So um, they went off and kept trying it. And maybe they would have done something. Maybe not. I don't know. But if, by 1985, um, I'd kind of I'd kind of lost interest, lost hope a little bit. But in 1985, Roy Disney got kicked out and was replaced by Michael Eisner. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Mike Eisner came in and brought with him Jeff Katzenberg, who made work with at 20th Century, and they produced a string of big-budget box office smash hits. Uh, and they were brought in to revitalize the Disney, uh, the Disney Motion Picture brand. So Jeff Katzenberg uh, came in as the head of both live action and animation. So he he made the decision that cross both uh, both conventions. And uh, when Mike and Jeff came in, the first thing they did was throw out every project that Disney had in development. Everyone, because that's what you do when you come in, start over, all except for one. They kept Roger Rabbit. Mm-hmm. So we have to make this movie. So um, they did something that nobody had Disney had ever done before. They brought in a, uh, an outside producer to produce the movie. Uh, nobody had ever gone outside the company for a producer before. And the producer they brought in was a little known guy just getting started, start named Steven Spielberg. Okay. So, <laughs> so they bring in Steve Spielberg. Little and,
0: guy. <laughs>
1: yeah, a little little bitty guy. No reputation at all. Let's yeah. give it a break. Uh, so um, just to show you what a difference Steve Spielberg makes on a movie. Uh, in 1983, uh, Roy Disney went to Warner Brothers and said, Hey, we're making this live action animated movie. Um, we'd like to have Bugs Bunny do a cameo. We'd like Bugs Bunny to come out and say, Hey, what's up, Doc? Eat a carrot and go, Oh, ain't I a stinker? and then walk off. What do you think? And Warner Brothers looked at Roy Disney and said, Get lost, get lost. There's no way. That Bugs Bunny is ever gonna be in a Walt Disney picture. That is never gonna happen. Forget it. So in 1985, 86, Steve Spielberg walks into Warner Brothers and makes the identical request. Hey, go, you know, get to do this live action animated thing. We have Bugs Bunny for a cameo. Warner Brothers looked at Steve Spielberg and said, Of course, of course, take him, take him. And what about what about Porky Pig? Does you want him? And what about Wiley Coyote and the roadrunner? And Sylvester and and Tweety Bird and and Yosemite Sam, take them all, take them all. (laughs) So Steve Spielberg walked out with all the Warner Bros. characters um, and and the only requirement, only one requirement, Bugs Bunny being a superstar at a contract. Um, Jesus Christ. (coughs) He was, as a a co-equal, superstar <laughs> excuse me with Mickey Mouse uh, he was required <clears throat> to be in every scene with Mickey Mouse you could not have Mickey Mouse on screen without bugs so bugs Mickey bugs Mickey and not only that they had to have the exact same number of words of dialogue so if you go back and watch the movie um, you will see that in every scene that Mickey is in that Bugs is also in, and if you want to count the number of words of dialogue, they're identical. Um, so uh, then S- Steve Spielberg brought in Bob Zemeckis, and yes. uh, Bob Z had uh, been offered the director's job back in 1981, and had read the book, as Steve had read the book back in 1981 too, and they both liked it. Uh, Bob Zemeckis would been offered the job, but um he didn't think that Disney had the horsepower to pull it off. So he went off and did some other, you know, unknown movies like Back to the Future and Forrest Gump, and whatever. And then when Steve Spielberg came back in, Bob Z uh, was approached again. Steve approached Bob Z and said, how about doing this movie? And Bob Z said, sure, yeah, I'll do it. And he now had a, now had a bigger budget, uh, had a better producer, uh, lots of, lots of uh, talent is disposal. also he came on. Um, Steve wanted to use an outside animator to oversee the Disney animation staff. So the Disney animation staff resisted this at first. Uh, finally, Steve insisted. And in, in retrospect, the Disney animators were happy he did. Uh, they they wanted a, a, a A-level animator, somebody really well-known to oversee all the animation and do all the character design and that kind of stuff. Uh, so everybody, me included, wanted Chuck Jones, the guy who did Bugs Bunny.
0: So It's a uh, great pick to have, by the way. Ladies and gentlemen, oh, if you don't know who oh, Chuck yeah. Jones is, you need to Google him and pick up his book, Chuckamuck. It's a fantastic yeah. book.
1: Incredible. So we we interviewed Chuck Jones and a terrific guy, he, he, um, terrific guy. Um, he was willing to do it but he was old at the time. I think he was in his late 60s, maybe, maybe even early 70s. And, uh, and the, uh, <clears throat> the feeling was that if we put him on, <clears throat> that the workload could kill it. And uh, so we reluctantly decided, no, for his own health, we're not going to put him on. And this is really the only time in Hollywood that I've ever seen anybody show the slightest sympathy towards anybody's health it's usually a hey, you know come Welcome. in and, yeah. Yeah, if, you're, if you're not working on if you're not willing to come in on saturday don't come in on sunday so um and die at your desk so uh, so from there uh we looked at ralph Bakshi, uh who had done the x-rated animated fritz the cat mm-hmm. um uh, Stephen thought he was a bit of a goon um although I do kind of wonder what he would have done with Jessica. Um, <laughs> and, and finally we, we interviewed a, a, a British expat named Dick Williams and Dick had won an Academy award for animating the pink Panther. Uh, Dick turned out to be the perfect choice. He was creative. He was a true gentleman. Uh, he was, he was wonderful with the animators. He was a terrific mentor for the younger animators. Um, the older animators all recognize his talent look up to him um, i don't think the, i don't think the movie would be half the movie it was has anybody else been involved as lead animator but uh, dick sat down with me to draw the characters because I, as i say I, I you know i'm a writer not an artist and I, I wrote the book and i had described the characters in the book but i had never actually seen them except in my head so we sat down, and first we did Roger, um, and he, he's pretty much the way he looks in the book. He's got the red overalls, the uh, polka dot tie. Uh, Dick thought that, um, in the book, he's a brown rabbit, mm-hmm. and Dick thought that on screen, uh, a brown rabbit would blend into the background, and you would lose him. You would lose focus on him. If he was a white rabbit, he would pop. And I think Dick was right on that. So we changed him from a, bl- a brown rabbit to a white rabbit. Um, Dick added the uh, little top knot up there, the orange top knot. And um, that was it. Jessica, we based on Red Hot Riding Hood. Uh, Tex Avery character. If you go go to YouTube and Google uh, Red Hot Riding Hood or Swing you. Ships uh, you'll see those two cartoons and you'll see that Red Hat looks pretty much like Jessica, or vice versa. Jessica looks pretty much like Red Hat. Um, Dick, Dick wanted Jessica to have those uh, outlandish uh, curves, shall we say, uh, the narrow waist and the, and the big chest, uh, because he wanted mostly other animators. A, a lot of a lot of this was done to impress other animators. Uh, non-Disney animators, but he wanted other animators to know that they hadn't rotoscoped this. And rotoscoping Go
0: on. Is,
1: a, is, a, is a technique where you photograph someone live action, and then you just draw over them. Mm-hmm. Uh, perfectly acceptable technique. Nothing wrong with it. Uh, I believe Snow they did White. it in Snow
0: White. Yeah, they did yeah, it in Snow, Snow White, White.
1: Cinderella Snow White, Cinderella, Dancing with the Prince, mm-hmm. uh, uh, probably, I think, Beauty and the Beast is rotoscoped, too.
0: Do you, do you know if uh, in pinocchio the god or not the godmother but the blue the blue fairy was she rotoscope too in pinocchio
1: boy i you she, know she i don't like think it. she was i don't think so i think mm-hmm. she was drawn because it I, looked
0: I, a little I, different than the other traditional animation during pinocchio that, at that, that, that was time.
1: that was 1935 there's not much this before my time but that was kind of before my time i don't know and uh uh i don't know but anyway um Nick wanted her proportions to be so outlandish that everybody would realize that she was not rotoscoped. And uh, so that's how she came to be. Uh, baby Herman was pretty simple because there, there were a number of adult babies in the comic books and cartoons of my era. Baby Hugo, uh, baby, uh, lots of adult babies. And uh, so he was pretty easy and he's pretty much the way he looked in, uh, in my book. Um, the next thing we had to do was find someone to play Eddie Valiant because without Eddie Valiant being a top notch actor it it would be up to Eddie to convince the audience that the rabbit and all these Toontown characters were real. Mm -hmm. It all depended on him everything. If, If he wasn't right then it just wasn't going to work. The whole premise would fall apart. Um, so we we looked at a lot of people. We looked, at, uh, uh, we looked at Kurt Russell. Everybody wanted Harrison Ford. I wanted Harrison Ford. But when he found out it was going to take three years, he said, no, nah, I can't do that. So we wanted Paul Newman. Uh, and he said no for the same reason. Um, we talked to James Woods. Lots and lots of people came in and, and read for it. Uh, But Stephen wanted someone, (laughs) someone bankable, somebody who could bring people into the movie based on name alone, because nobody really knew if this was going to be a kid's movie or an adult movie. Nobody really knew if this was going to be any good. So at least if you have a bankable star, people will come to see it because, hey, you know, everybody wants to go see Harrison Ford. So um, we finally found the guy that everybody thought would be the perfect Eddie Valiant and was bankable. And uh, that guy, of course, was um, um, Bill Murray. So Bill Murray is an Italian, right? So we're filming Bill Murray. And Bill Murray cannot, not only can he not convince an audience that the rabbit is real, I don't think he believed the rabbit was real. He was constantly going, whoa, you're a cartoon rabbit. What are you doing here? Oh, cartoon rabbit, whoa. I've been drinking too, too many drugs. So it, it was obvious after a very short period of time that Bill Murray was not going to work out. Right. So they bought him out of his contract, $1 million, bought him out of his contract. Uh, so he goes out. really loved uh,
0: during the 80s. Hmm. That seems really low during the 80s for Bill Murray. I mean, I don't know if he had done Caddyshack at that point, but I know Ghostbusters was a thing. I mean, that man was every, Groundhog's Day was real big too. $1 million to buy out Bill Murray. Just his <laughs> contract, yeah.
1: I mean, that's two weeks work. So, you know. <laughs> so, anyway. Uh, so, you know, we've kept looking. And we finally found a guy, bankable guy, big name, uh, the perfect Eddie Valiant. And that guy, of course, was Eddie Murphy. So Eddie Murphy comes in and now he's Eddie Valiant. We got a black Eddie Valiant. And suddenly we're rewriting the script to make Eddie Valiant funnier than the tunes, all right? So this obviously isn't gonna work either. So, you know, Eddie Murphy gets bought out of his contract, $1 million and a Ferrari. Uh, And, you know, he goes off. so, you know, we're looking, we're looking and, and meanwhile over on the other side of town, Brian De Palma is filming The Untouchables and Brian De Palma wants Bobby De Niro to be Al Capone. But Bobby De Niro is making another movie and he can't get loose, so uh De Palma hires a, a British guy named Bob Hoskins to be Al Capone. And uh after about two weeks of filming with Bob Hoskins as Al Capone, Bobby De Niro calls up to Palma and says, hey, I, I rapped early, I can I can be in your movie. So Bob Hoskins is just fired. Now he's got a million dollars and nothing to do. So, you know, they say, hey, let's bring in Bob Hoskins. And let's see if Bob Hoskins can do the role. And I said, I'm a big admirer of Bob Hoskins. I've seen everything he'd ever done. Long Good Friday and Mona Lisa Terrific, terrific actor, but he's British and he's not just British, he's cockney British. I mean, there is no way that he is going to be able to convince anybody that he's a prototypical L.A. private eye. So Bob Hoskins came in and read some scenes and not only did he speak in a perfect American accent, not just perfect, but a perfect L.A. private eye, hard-boiled detective accent, but on a bare stage, first time out of the box, he convinced everybody watching him that that rabbit was real. Uh, he, he was the most amazing actor I have ever seen in my life. He If you watch that movie, when he is handcuffed to the rabbit, his handcuffs are on springs. So he he is controlling not just his arm motion, but the rabbit's arm motion. So he has to remember where his arm and his hand are, and where the rabbit's arm and rabbit's hand are, and move everything. So, I mean, talk about rubbing your head and scratching mm-hmm. your stomach at the same time. Um, and, and he had to remember to always look the rabbit in the eye it, it, because if if his eye sight line was off, then the whole thing was off. So. And there was no rabbit. I mean, he had to make the rabbit up and, and look the rabbit in the eye and they had to animate where, and they told him where the rabbit would be, but he still had to remember that. Uh, when he was thrown out of the and pain club, the gorilla threw him out. Uh, he was on a wire. And as he went sailing through the air and landed on all those trash cans, uh, they really landed him on those trash cans uh, and he broke three ribs.
0: Oh, shit. So,
1: yeah. So we thought, oh, geez, here we go. They, uh, so their production is going to haul for three months while, while Hoskins, Rib Seal, came in the next day, taped up, said, let's go. Uh, I, I mean, I have never, I've never seen a guy who was that good an actor and that much of a trooper. Uh, and it, it, I, if people ask me, you know, what do you think of the movie? Do you have any regrets? And I do, I have one regret. My one regret is that Hoskins did the most fantastic job of acting that I have ever seen an actor do in a movie. And he did not even get nominated for an Academy Award. And I've looked at that and I've looked at that. And the only reason I can think of is that he made it look too easy. He made it look like it was no big deal. Like, you know, people after a while, I think, forgot that those cartoon characters weren't real. That that he was making that all up in his head as he went along. Um, and I I I really regret that he did not win the Academy or at least get nominated for it that year. It's My only regret about the movie. Um, I'll, I'll tell you the how we got Jessica Jessica's voice too because that's interesting. Before, before you
0: get to before you get to yeah. Jessica, um, I, I like doing this especially when somebody's no longer here. Um, mm-hmm. because it's it's the whole reason I do this podcast is is to give my thanks for people like yourself and everybody else I've ever had on this podcast because without people like you and everybody else I've had on my podcast and everybody that's going to come on this podcast my childhood would have been very bleak and very boring and it just okay. wouldn't have been fun yeah. at all you know, what I know I mean? so with with that being said whenever somebody is no longer here that had such a huge part in so many people's lives. I always like to ask, do you have a favorite X, Y, and Z story of person A, B, or C? So do you have a favorite of our perfect Eddie Valiant story? Do you have a, do you have a story of him or, you know, Bob Hoskins? Yeah. Um,
1: If you ask Bob Hoskins, how he got into acting. All right. Bob Hoskins would tell you that he had been, he had been a dock worker. And he, he was in a bar one night and uh, everybody was going up to the second floor. Mm-hmm. And he thought there was a hooker up there. <laughs> so he went up to the second floor and he opened the door expecting to find a hooker. And instead, he found a room full of people. They gave him some pages and said, here, read this. And he didn't know if that was maybe what you had to do before you could, you could go to bed with a hooker. So he read them and it turned out it was casting, and he got the role, right? Now, that's what he tells you. In reality, Bob Hoskins was trained as a classical Shakespearean actor. He went to acting school. He he knew more about acting than any 10 people I've ever met in my life. But, uh, you know, when the legend conflicts with reality, print the legend. Yeah.
0: I didn't mean to cut you off, so we were gonna we were, we we're talking about Jessica Rabbit and how she came yeah. to be. Um, and I also want to uh, because we talked about it before, um, but the uh, the Jessica Rabbit in China, you want me to remind you about sure. that as yeah, well? Sure, so we yeah, can yeah, talk sure. about that after,
1: yeah. So Jessica Rabbit is probably my most popular character. I wonder um, why. <laughs> <laughs> go figure, I don't know. Um, I, I get and this has been fairly constant, I get probably. Thirty to fifty uh, pictures a week of women cosplaying Jessica Rabbit. I and those pictures
0: you're right? sharing yeah. too.
1: And I don't discriminate—men, women, whatever. Um, and I think the reason for that is because she is a beloved character. But I think that Jessica Rabbit is a character that a lot of women could cosplay, who could not possibly cosplay. Wonder Woman, or uh, you know, any any woman that uh, Scarlett Johansson would have portrayed in a movie, you know, Jessica Rabbit is made for women to cosplay who are a little on the buxom side, um, you know, not uh, not not too slender. Um, she's more outrageous, and Jessica, when women cosplay her, is more a state of mind than an than an actual look. I mean, you can have thin women, heavy women, whatever women, men uh, can cosplay Jessica Rabbit. Uh, and whenever I am addressing college classes or high, especially high school classes, and they introduce me as the creator of Jessica Rabbit, young boys always get down and genuflect in front of me, you know, oh, thank you, thank you. We are not worthy. Uh, but when, when we were looking for a voice for Jessica, <coughs> um, We, uh, uh, we, Bob Z wanted, uh, wanted Kathleen Turner. He'd worked with her in Romancing the Stone and she had a great voice. And I thought, yeah, she, she perfect, perfect, but beautiful, beautiful woman. If you ever saw body heat and she just take your breath away, Uh, beautiful voice. So she came in and she did the voice, Uh, but Uh, The voices were done before anything else, before any filming, before any animation. The voices were done first. And for whatever reason, uh, she did the voice great, but for whatever reason, she couldn't sing the song. Uh, She was pregnant at the time, and maybe that affected her breath control. I don't know. Maybe she just can't sing. I don't know. But she couldn't sing the song. So Steve Spielberg was there with his wife at the time, who was Amy Irving. And Stephen said to Amy, he says, hey, you know, you sang in Yento. Why don't you give it a whack? And I said, Steve, I said, nobody's going to believe that Jessica has one voice when she sings and another voice when she speaks. I mean, nobody's going to believe that. And he says, ah, nobody will even notice. So um, we did. Amy or me recorded the song and Kathleen recorded the, the speaking voice. Now, Kathleen decided... To not take film credit for the voice, uh, which is what James Earl Jones did in Raiders of the Lost Ark with uh, Darth Vader. He voiced Darth Vader, but didn't take screen credit because nobody knew Star Wars was going to be any good. Uh, and and just, like, just like that, you know, if it wasn't any good, then James Earl Jones would just fade into the woodwork and deny any... Uh, Uh, any involvement. Um, If it was good, then James Earl Jones would come out and say, oh, I did the voice. So so Kathleen decided to do the same thing because nobody at this point knew if this was going to be, they didn't even know if it was going to be an adult movie or a children's movie. Uh, They were worried that uh, Kathleen was worried that it might wind up being Howard the Duck. Uh, So she agreed to do it with no screen credit. And uh, that way, uh, you know, if it failed now, she would just step into the background. If it was a success, she would be the voice of Jessica Rabbit. So she didn't take screen credit, but Amy Irving did. So if you stick around and read the screen credits, which I think run for like 20 or 30 minutes, (laughs) but you will see Amy Irving, same voice of Jessica Rabbit. Um, So um, as I say, Jessica, my... My probably my, my most popular and most successful character. And uh, I was in China a few years back. Um, you know, I was there for six months. I went around the whole country and I was uh, addressing uh, animation schools uh, of which there were many, many in China. There are many and they're, they're old school. Uh, literally, they're doing 2D animation, no, no computer graphics, all hand drawn animation. Beautiful stuff. Mm-hmm. A lot of talented people there. And uh, every time I would give, basically, uh, you know, my Roger Rabbit talk, and I every time I would mention Jessica Rabbit, they would call her by a Chinese name, and everybody would chuckle or laugh. And, and so finally, I, I asked the translator. I said, "Why does everybody laugh?" When I see Jessica Rabbit, and he said, well, in China, Jessica Rabbit is known as big melons. <laughs> <laughs> well, I got it. So I am the big melon man, right?
0: That's phenomenal, uh, man. Thank you for sharing those stories. Uh, I know we <laughs> talked earlier as well. Uh, you have a Jessica Rabbit origins novel coming out pretty soon. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. It's called Jessica Rabbit, serious business with a serious spelled X-C-R-I-O-U-S, serious business. It's a Jessica Rabbit oranges novel, and it takes Jessica uh, from her humble beginnings, uh, living in a trailer park, uh, and working in a yeah, and working in a, a joke shop, uh, to the Jessica Rabbit that we know and love today. Uh, it talks about how she got there, uh, how she met Roger, um, how uh, how tunes came to be. And um, how Toontown came to be, so it, it, it's it, it kind of fills in a lot of the story that people keep asking me about. You know, wh- where did tunes come from? You know, uh, how did tunes come to be, and how did Jessica meet Roger uh, and whatever? And this kind of fills in all of the, all of those stories. Uh, should be out. I'm guessing March, April timeframe. Okay. Uh, we're just now doing the cover. The, the book's been done. It's my pandemic book. Took me two years to write it, and I wrote it during the pandemic when I had absolutely nothing else to do, uh, but amuse myself with Jessica Rabbit stories. So there, there you go. Uh,
0: I don't know if you can talk about it, but I mean, how how uh, how 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 long is the book? I'm, I guess is what I'm getting at. Is it a pretty decent book? Is it going to be? It's about, uh,
1: in terms of pages. It's probably the, the longest book I've written. I think uh, most of my books run two eighty to three hundred. I think this one is 365, 385. So it's, it's pretty long, pretty pretty decent. Um, I, I, I was concerned about writing a Jessica Rabbit book because um, I, I, I want Jessica to represent women. I, mm-hmm. I want, and, and I don't want to belittle Jessica. Uh, I don't want to make her uh, the stooge of the men around her. She's a strong, uh, creative, intelligent woman. Uh, and I wanted to portray her that way. So I spent a lot of time uh, writing her as I think she she is, and as I think she is in the movie, and uh, as I think uh, she would have been before the movie. Um, I, I chose for readers, I always... Before I publish a book, I always have like 10 or 20 people read it just to make sure that I haven't completely you know, blown it on the one yard line. And <laughs> I, had, uh, I had about 50 people read this one, uh, the majority of them women, because I wanted to make sure that uh, women were going to be accepting of my image of Jessica Rabbit and it successful beyond my wildest dreams. I mean, the, the comments were, were almost universal. Jessica Rabbit is the kind of woman that I have always wanted to be, um, and uh, so I, I think it's I think it's going to be a, a pretty good book. Plus, uh, <laughs> the other comments I've, I'm getting are, man, this is laugh out loud funny. So, uh, w- which is interesting for me because all of my books, people read them, and they all say, "Wow, you know, th- this is laugh out loud funny." If you read my Wikipedia entry. Uh, It says Gary K. Wolf, American humorist, which means I write funny stuff like Mark Twain. Uh, But in reality, I don't write funny stuff. I write what I think is deadly, serious stuff. It's just that people read it and think it's funny. Now, I don't know. I don't know what that says about me, but um, that's that's just the way it's just the way it is.
0: It really means you're a master of your craft when you look at it from my perspective. I'm <laughs> well, really looking. I'm really looking forward to this book. I've got it written down, and I told you this. This episode will probably come out in the middle of February. So, regardless mm-hmm. of when that book comes out, whether it's March or April, uh, the links will get updated in the description so they can go. Are you going to? Ex- is it going to be available through Amazon or is it exclusively through your website? no you said you no, a Amazon. Before. It'll be.
1: It'll be available on my website www.garywolf.com but it'll sell through Amazon and it'll come out as a Kindle book. Mm-hmm. Uh, it'll come out as a paperback trade paperback and it'll come out as a hardcover.
0: Okay. Now um, are you going to offer any of the uh, signed copies off of your website.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I always do that. If, if people want a signed copy of any of my books, all they have to do is hit me up through my, uh, uh, through my website and, uh, you know, just tell me and I'll make arrangements, uh, Signed copy. Uh, they pay the postage, and uh, you know, happy to do that. We do that all the time.
0: Beautiful. And then those, uh, all those links will be in the description as well, so you guys can go straight to his website. And if you want to tell Gary he's doing a fantastic job, you can do that as well. Um, <laughs> I don't want to keep. And they though. all should.
1: Uh, they all should.
0: But uh, let me tell you one other
1: thing: uh, the, the three Roger Rabbit novels. Uh, who who censored Roger Rabbit, which is the first? Uh, who p- p- plugged Roger Rabbit, which is the second? Uh, and who whacked Roger Rabbit, which is the third, um, all just came out as audiobooks. Are so, you reading them? Uh, he, no, I'm not reading them. I, uh, I just, I just read a, a novel by a guy who writes a series of novels that I really enjoy, and, and he is. I won't tell you which one because you may figure it out. But on one of his, he reads it himself, and something an author should never do. Just don't do it these guys who read books read them for a reason because they're professional readers and don't do it yourself but i tell you having them come out on audiobook saved me so much time because the way i used to handle that was if somebody wanted an audio version they would it would call me up and i would read it to them over the phone Jesus. and you know it just took forever <laughs> it saves me a lot of time
0: i can only imagine um... Yeah, so like I said, I'll make sure those links get in there. I'm really looking forward to those. Um, looking back, I mean, I, I I don't know why my mind's blanking, but what year did the movie release?
1: 1988.
0: 88, out, so that was a year before in, I was born.
1: Came out in 1988. Uh, I went to the Academy Awards in 1989, where I sat close enough to share to smell her perfume. And <laughs> uh, we won four Academy Awards for the movie. Uh, it was the highest grossing movie of 1988 and up until the, the last accounting I saw, which was like last month, it, 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 grossed like 700 million in 88 and it's now well over a billion and a half, uh, it's, it's still going, um, phenomenally, phenomenally successful movie. You know, I'll answer the question that everybody is going to ask anyway, is there going to be a sequel? Um, You know, in Hollywood, money talks and a movie that's made a billion and a half dollars. The rule of thumb is that a sequel will make three quarters of that. So three quarters of a billion dollars is not jump change even in Hollywood. Um, A lot of the reason why the movie didn't, the sequel didn't get made was political. Uh, The characters all changed. Michael Eisner left, Jeff Katzenberg left uh steve spielberg kind of came and went with the disney umbrella uh but my sense of it is that the stars will align and that sooner or later there will be a sequel yeah
0: that'd be really cool excuse me that'd be really cool to see man uh it's it's one of those franchises that even though because you brought it up earlier back to the future even though back to the future had two sequels i feel like that movie the first one could have been a standalone never seen another one. And yeah, the fans would have wanted more. I mm-hmm. see Roger rabbit in that same light. I see that as a movie that I would love to see one, but very rarely do you ever capture lightning in a bottle twice, but absolutely. with the plethora yeah, of characters absolutely. that they have. And the fact that you're still around to, to consult for sure on how much yeah, consulting did you do for the, the original movie? I mean, were you on set every day or would they call uh, it? I could have been, if
1: I wanted to, uh, they, my, my contribution was the book of course, which, Steve and uh, Bob Z, and especially all the animators read and loved, uh, they would, they would have me come in and do story conferences where they would talk about gag ideas and, and, you know, tweaks to the script. And I'd be in a room with like 35 of the most talented, creative, funny people I've ever met in my life. And they're all throwing out ideas on how to make my book better. And I'm thinking, why couldn't I have had these people sitting around my kitchen table <laughs> at four in the morning when I was writing this damn book, you know, I would add a Pulitzer prize winner. Uh, you know, when the movie's being made, when it's actually being shot, uh, there's not much for the writer to do. And, uh, frankly, I, I'm a writer. I, I'm, I'm not a, I'm not a movie maker. Uh, I, I find the movie making process to be kind of boring, uh, mm-hmm. poor, uh, you know, Judge Doom, when he's putting his hand in that glove to get ready to dip the red shoe, uh, and uh, he just couldn't get it right. He, you know, his hand would go up, and, and these fingers would go in the glove, and then his hand and his finger would go in the glove, and then this finger would go in the glove. Take after take after take after take, after, take try, try to get the fingers in the glove. Uh, and I, I just can't do it. And then you break the set, and you go down, and you do another set and you do 20 million takes of something else. I, uh, I don't have the patience for it. The movie was filmed in London um, because Steve Spielberg likes the food in England. Go figure.
0: That's interesting Um, because they're not really known for food.
1: (laughs) Well, I don't think it was really, the real reason was I, I say that just to, just to him. but uh, the real reason was uh, we filmed at Elstree studios, which is where they were filming Superman at the time because Elstree Studios had a three-story soundstage uh, and that didn't exist in the United States. It does now, but it didn't then. Uh, And on the top floor were the sets uh, with with the uh, Ink and Paint Club and uh, railroad terminal bar and that kind of stuff. On the second level were the puppeteers who would move the real props through cutouts in the floor from underneath. And then on the bottom level, there were banks of video cameras. Bob Z would hang out down there and watch the filming and animators would then animate, would then draw over the video cameras so that he could see the relationship between the animation, uh, the animated characters and the, and the live action. Um, so that was, that was really why we did that. Um, they uh, I'll tell you one good story because it was uh, we also filmed outside an old railroad terminal in um, uh, outside England and that was the Acme warehouse and uh, if you you look at the movie you'll see there are palm trees outside the Acme warehouse well this was England in the middle of winter and trust me there are no palm trees in England anytime, but let alone in the middle of winter. So, uh, you know, movie magic, Steve Spielberg sent a plane to uh, Saudi Arabia and came back with 20 palm trees and they kind of (laughs) put them in buckets, you know, around. Well, uh, one other thing, palm trees do not do well in cool weather. No, they don't. (laughs) They don't do well in cool weather. So every night, uh, the stagehands would go and wrap the palm trees in bubble wrap mm-hmm. to keep them warm, right? So you had these palm trees and they were wrapped in bubble wrap and they looked kind of like this, okay? And I'm coming to the set, the studio one day and I saw this old couple and they're walking along the sidewalk and the man says to the to his wife, he says, they're advertising condoms everywhere these days. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Taking a, taking a peek real quick at that, uh, it, w- what part of the budget is that one getting pulled from to fly to Saudi Arabia to get 20 palm trees, not to mention 20 palm trees worth of bubble wrap? Well,
1: uh, who knows? I, I mean, that's that's why I, I give, uh, you know, Steve Spielberg takes credit for it. I take credit for it. Bob Sermichus takes credit for it. The guy that really ought to take credit for it is uh, Jeff Katzenberg. Because he's the guy that signed the checks. And uh, when he started at Disney, um, he produced the famous Katzenberg memo in, in which he said, the problem with studios, why movie studios fail is because they're they, they are always going for the home run, always going for the home run. He says, we are never going for the home run. We're going to go for the single and the double. And, and I am never going to spend more than $14 million on a movie. Now, back in 19... 19- Eighty-five when he wrote that, that was a lot of money. Uh, so for the first production budget meeting that, that we had with him, um, Don Han, the producer, said, "Well, my my original my preliminary estimate for how much it's going to cost to do this is thirty-five million, and it's probably going to be more. Probably going to be a lot more." And Jeffrey didn't blink an eye. He said, "Okay, do it, but just make sure you do it right." And as the budget went up, it went up 35, 40, 50, 60, eventually it went to 78 million dollars. And um, Jeffrey never batted an eye. He would look at he would look at the dailies and he would look at the animation and he would say, okay, keep going, just do it right. So um, I'm sure that a couple of palm <laughs> trees and some saran wrap is just a drop in the bucket in a 78 million dollar budget. You know, they yeah, probably exactly. picked, they probably picked up a gallon of hummus for the crew. Uh, I don't
0: <laughs> know. Hey, man, if you're going there, you might as well pick up some hummus because everybody can enjoy a little bit of hummus from time to time. Uh, as we as we start to wind down, because I want to keep you too, too much longer. Uh, mm-hmm. This has been a blast. I mean, we've only scratched the surface. So if you're up for it, I'd love to have you on down the road, maybe in a few months. Sure. We'll After come the Jessica longer.
1: Rabbit, we'll comes out, we'll do it
0: again. Beautiful. That sounds delightful, man. I'm really looking forward to that. Um, so we've got a few questions here. And I like saving these towards the end. I didn't write anybody's name down. So I apologize ahead of time uh, with an infant son. It's very hard to find time to get away, to write some stuff down for extracurricular activity. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I figure we'll just, we'll, we'll ask him. And then the first thing that comes to your mind, that's what we'll go with. That's okay with you. Sure. And uh, favorite scene in the movie. Uh, favorite, favorite scene in, in the, the book movie. as well. Uh, bumping,
1: the, bumping the lamp uh, th- where, um, uh, okay. Where Roger is in in the back room at the uh, at the terminal bar, and he bumps the lamp, and the lamp goes back and forth and back and forth, and it, it changes the shadowing on on Eddie, on Dolores, and on Roger, and on everything around. And uh, it is a phenomenal bit of animation, uh, terrifically difficult to match up the shadows on everything else in the shadows on roger and in fact now when animators do a piece of animation that they think is incredibly spectacular they refer to that as bumping the lamp and that's my favorite scene
0: that's awesome what's your favorite part of the book
1: oh geez my favorite part of the book i guess the first page where uh you meet eddie and uh you kind of meet the rabbit um I I guess that would have to be it. I also like the ending because the ending is kind of different from the movie, terrifically different from the movie. And the ending is so hard-boiled. It's just prototypical, hard-boiled ending to a noir mystery.
0: Beautiful. Um, Was there any characters that, uh, was it? Was there any characters that you wanted to see in the movie, both from Disney or Universal Amblin, that didn't sure. make it? Sure.
1: Yeah. The, the, they had some problems getting some of the characters. Uh, they, they, Warner Brothers came came in easily, but uh, when we went to Fleischer and tried to get Popeye, uh, they wanted a horrendous amount of money for Popeye. Uh,
0: Do you and, remember how uh, much?
1: I don't. I don't, mm-hmm. but a lot. A yeah. lot more than we were willing to pay, and uh, so we didn't get any of the Flesher characters. The animators wanted to put an homage to my word balloons in the movie, mm-hmm. uh, to the fact that my characters in the book talk in word balloons, and they they had you know they had tried using word balloons early on in the movie back in eighty one where right? Disney tried doing it, but it made it a silent movie, so you know it did, actually didn't work. But the animators wanted to have <coughs> at least one word balloon as an homage to my book. So they had a scene, uh, at Marvin Acme's funeral, where uh, six animated characters, uh, Goofy, um, Bozo the Clown, a bunch of others, who were all you know, funny, funny, ridiculous characters were carrying the casket. And at one point, one of them trips and they all start laughing. And then pretty soon everybody in the entourage and everybody in the crowd is laughing and it's a funeral, but they're all laughing because they're tunes and that's what they do. And then they pass a, a, a cartoon character called crazy cat and crazy cat was a black and white cat from the thirties and early forties in newspaper comic strips and cartoons and in uh, 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 newspaper uh, in comic books too, I think. Mm-hmm. And he never spoke, never spoke. He was always silent. Uh, and as they went by Crazy Cat, Crazy Cat put up a word balloon that said sob. And it, it went up over his head, said sob. And it turned to tears and came down and wet his head and his shoulders. A beautiful animation. But as I say, we didn't know if this was going to be a, a kid's movie or an adult movie. So the rule of thumb is if it's a, if it's a kid's movie, it can't be longer than 90 minutes. Uh, and this movie came in at about an hour and 50. So they had to, they cut scenes to get it closer to 90 in case it wound up being a kid's movie. So they cut out the Marvin Acme scene. Uh, they also cut out the scene, uh, first scene where Eddie Valiant goes into Toontown. And, uh, he, uh, he sees Jessica talking to Judge Doom and, um, he, um, he, he, believes that jessica is somehow involved in this plot that somehow she has something to do with the murder uh and then the weasels catch eddie and judge doom interrogates him and then the weasels put a pig head on him and take him out of toontown and throw him out back on the streets in la and he goes back to his office goes into his or his his apartment goes into his shower and he looks in the looks in the mirror and sees a pig head and he so he gets in the shower and he washes off the pig head and and the the paint goes down the drain like uh, when Janet Lee was uh, stabbed in
0: Psycho. Uh,
1: Psycho and it's a really nice scene and then mm-hmm. and then he comes out of the bathroom after he's washed off the pig head and he's wearing his tie and his wife beater right mm-hmm. and at that point Jessica comes in and they have their, their interchange where she says I'm not bad I've been drawn that way but that scene got cut too and um, if you look at the movie you, you it starts when he comes out of the bathroom and you think what's a guy doing in the bathroom wearing a wife beater and a tie i mean <laughs> it doesn't make any sense they they did restore that uh, part of that scene the pighead scene uh and some of the extras on some of the dvd so you can still see that but the uh crazy cat scene with my character that i most wanted to see I was gone. And they actually couldn't get the rights to crazy cat anyway. So I don't know what they would have done. But if you look at the lintel over the tunnel, when Eddie Valiant is going into Toontown, you see crazy cat's face up there, which I guess
0: nobody nobody got. That's uh, (laughs) not yet. (laughs) That's a, that's a nice (laughs) little nod. Um, If you could cast a actress and an actor, obviously, um, I don't know if they really meant uh just voices or if it was a live action version, but we'll just do voices and live action if you want to. But if you could cast a Roger and a Jessica, both voice-wise and live action-wise of the actors Jessica, and actresses. Jessica of today. Scarlet,
1: Jessica Scarlett Johansson, and uh you know Charlie Fleischer is is my Roger Rabbit. I mean, I yeah he looks like him, he talks like him. <laughs> <laughs> hey, he he uh you know, the first time I met Charlie Fleischer, the reason we hired him in the first place, we saw him in a comedy club in LA, and he was doing a bit uh, where he he imitated Donald Duck having an orgasm. And from, from that point on, I mean, this is my guy. Uh, and he was the guy that uh, came up with the stutter on pee because Dick Williams felt that every major cartoon character had some kind of a speech impediment And so Charlie was the one who came up with the stutter on P. And uh, to help Hoskins get into the role, we made a uh, costume that was pretty much like this. And Charlie would be on set every day wearing that costume and doing the voice live so that Hoskins could have something to react to. Uh, And I I began to realize just how much Charlie looked like Roger. So it would be Charlie and Scarlett Johansson, no
0: question at all. That'd be a phenomenal two choices. And, uh, last one, if you could change now, obviously, you know, with you being the creator of these characters, you got some kind of, I don't want to say you got more of an attachment to these characters than anybody else, but you created them. They were from you. So it's this extension of yourself. It's like your kids almost, right? Mm -hmm. These are a piece of you. Um, but if you could change anything in the book, and anything in the movie would you and if so what and why
1: well that was a that was a that's a good question i think the movie is is the perfect movie uh i wouldn't change a thing i i i'm over the moon at how well that movie came out um it was a and the book i think is a classic i wouldn't change anything in the book the problem for me was the second book because uh, I, had, I had no intention of ever writing a second book. I thought the first book was a standalone, but of course, you know, when the movie was such, so phenomenally successful um, and, and publishers started coming to me and saying, Hey, we want a second book. Um, all of them had rejected the first book at least once. And yeah. a couple of them rejected the first book at three times, but uh, 10 publishers came to me and said, Hey, we will pay you to write a second book. I had a, I had a problem because uh, last last tabulation probably eight, eight or nine billion people have seen the movie and maybe 32 people have read the book and that includes my my, my mother and my five aunts. So uh, you know most people see Roger Rabbit and Jessica as the movie characters, not the book characters. Uh, so for the second book I had to decide am I going to, Disneyfy this or keep it as a uh, you know a, kind of a dark brooding hard-boiled private eye and i decided uh it, it's not exactly a hybrid it, it's it's still more the book than the movie but i did change the characters so that instead of speaking in word balloons they now have the option to speak verbally if they want to Mm-hmm. And Jessica always does. Jessica thinks that word balloons make her look unattractive. Um, Roger still talks in word balloons. And in fact, I'm writing a, a new, my post pan, or maybe my pandemic two book is going to be another Roger Rabbit uh, and Evaliant book. And in that one, um, Roger puts up a word balloon that looks oddly like a Snickers bar, which he then takes down and eats, <laughs> you which know, just tickles me. Uh, so, uh, I, for the third book, uh, I pretty much went back to the, 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 really dark, uh, brooding, noirish feeling of the first book. Uh, but I, I basically, I wouldn't change a whole lot. I'm pretty happy with the way they are.
0: Beautiful. And I'm sure a lot of us are I, as well. I will,
1: I will tell you what, one interesting story about the movie that I just learned, I just found this out know it before. Um, But when we were doing the Warner Brothers characters, uh, Warner Brothers, when they said you can use the characters, Warner Brothers specified that they wanted those characters to be the 1985 characters, Mm -hmm. not the 1948 characters. And there's a big difference. If you look at Bugs Bunny in 1948, 47, he's different from the Bugs Bunny that, that he is today. And the Warner Brothers wanted their characters to be the modern characters. The Disney animators <coughs> wanted them to be the 40s characters so that they, they looked like everything else from the 40s. Uh, so the animator who was responsible for doing the Warner Brothers characters did two versions. He did one using the 1988 characters the way they were. And he did another using the 1940s characters. They showed the 1988 version to Warner Brothers and put the 1940s version in the movie.
0: When the movie came
1: out and Warner Brothers saw the 1940s characters instead of the 1988 characters, they went ballistic. But the movie was such a roaring success and won so many Academy Awards that they realized that that they had... tapped a mine here because they all of a sudden were able to sell <coughs> merchandise and dolls that looked like the 1940s characters as well as the 1980s characters. Although uh, the, the animator who did that uh, wound up getting fired, so it wasn't a happy ending for everybody.
0: Do you remember the name of that animator?
1: I'm not going uh, to, no. <laughs> I, I've forgotten. It's, it's gone from my head. I have no idea.
0: It's kind of like that thought balloon with the snickers. It's kind of
1: yeah, it's kind of. And I'll reach up there and I'll, I'll eat it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, Gary, it's been a blast getting to talk to you. Like I said, thanks. I I had a lot of fun. Thanks. Thank you. I appreciate that. I, I saw the movie before I read the book, and I like, I like them both a lot. I mean, you can't have one without the other, and like i said these characters have played such a huge role not only in my life your life as well but so many fans i mean what was the last number seven eight billion people have seen this movie yeah at least so, I mean, yeah at least i mean we got to make it where it's everybody in this world is going to see this movie and that's what's cool about this medium now Oops, shit hit the button that's what's cool about this medium now is that mm-hmm. this character will last thousands and until we don't exist anymore people that people don't true. exist anymore these characters I- will go
1: I am, I am amazed that it, the characters I created uh, will outlive me and characters I created have become cultural icons. I mean, one last, uh, one last uh, uh, anecdote, um, I got my first uh, COVID vaccination uh, back in, I, I can't remember, February, I can't remember, a yeah. while ago. And um, this was a biggie for me because this meant I'm gonna live. <laughs> I'm going to die with an incubator down my throat. So I was really excited about this. And uh, I got vaccinated at Fenway Park. Uh, They had a big vaccination site at Fenway Park. And I said, all right, I am going to give whoever jabs me with that needle, I am going to give them a first edition copy of my Roger Rabbit book. You know, like $500 book. Mm -hmm. So I brought the book. And I, wore my, I was wearing my Roger Rabbit t-shirt, my, my dress t-shirt, which is Big Roger Rabbit. And I sat down and the woman who was, gave me the injection looked at me and looked at my t-shirt, said Roger Rabbit. She said, I love that movie. She said, I saw that movie the week it came out and I was pregnant at the time. And during the credits, I went into labor. So they took me right from the movie theater to the hospital. I had my son and I named him Roger. And I said, do I have a surprise for you? And I gave her the book and, uh, she was pretty much over the moon. Um, when, (laughs) when I went in to get my second shot, um, I was going to do the same thing again. And I wore the same shirt. Uh, I didn't give her a first edition, uh, I gave her. I was going to give her a paperback, and uh, so the, the woman was getting my needle ready, and I didn't say anything. And I said, "Oh, I said, do you know who this is on my T-shirt?" She looked. She said, "No." I said, "Who framed Roger Rabbit? Did you ever see that movie?" No. <laughs> okay. You know, I guess there are probably twenty billion Chinese who have never seen it either. <laughs> I, I gave her the autograph book. Anyway, and explained it to her. I suspect it
0: probably turned up on eBay. I don't know. <laughs> anyway, well, that's one of the coolest stories. Thank you for sharing that. I always get to, I always enjoy getting to hear these type of stories because I don't know if you've ever, you know, told that story out there or you've made that No, I never have. That's at public. I've never
1: told it in public. I've told my friends, but I've never told it in public. I'm sure that, uh, that woman who, uh, didn't know who I was. If she ever heard it, it would be embarrassed, but I can imagine she's not going to be listening to this. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, probably not, man. But that 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 first story, that w- that was that's really cool. That's something you can be like, holy shit. Not only have I just inspired future generations, because there's quite a few animators that I've had on this this podcast that strictly talk about this movie. One of them being Sabrina Alberghetti. She was mm-hmm. she worked on um a, a lot of the editing. She's working on a lot of Disney stuff as well. That's her favorite movie, and uh, she had posted on on her social media site how she had just gotten some of the original drawings from uh, from the movie, so she was super excited about it. And she's like, "Yeah, this movie inspired me to become and go down the road of animation." And now she's an I animated, hear that you know? I hear that
1: over and over and over again. I get so many emails. Uh, also, you can check me out on Facebook, uh, Gary Period K Period Wolf. I post a lot of stuff there, and I get so many messages on Facebook about geez, thank you because I saw Roger Rabbit and that's why I decided to become an animator or an artist or a a writer. uh, Uh, It it
0: never gets old, I bet, man. It's it's, very satisfying.
1: Never gets old.
0: Never gets old. Yeah. So like I said, we're going to do this again here in a couple months when when Jessica drops. Uh, I'll make sure I'm going to go as soon as we get off this call. I'm putting it in my Amazon cart and buying it now so I can be the first <laughs> ones to get it. And we can talk about it and be fresh in my mind as soon as we talk again. So.
1: <laughs> All right. This is a pleasure. Thanks a lot for having
0: me. Thank you, man. Uh, that's been Gary. This has been Julian. This has been the What's in My Head podcast. and This has been another piece of your childhood, not just a piece, a huge piece. Good night. Thanks again for checking out the What's in My Head podcast. If you're digging what you're hearing, leave us a five star rating. That will help other fans of animation and pop culture find the show. Don't forget to smash that subscribe button, tell a friend, and I'll see you guys and gals next week. Good night.